And we're going to continue our look at the work of Jesus Christ. So the other time we did quite a, a, a big overview, but I'd like to break that down into smaller pieces and think of the work of Jesus Christ as to, uh, today as he, his death on the cross. And in uh, this work is Jesus solving the biggest problem ever by dying on the cross. That's what we're going to think about this morning as God helps us. And I want to say that this message is a really good message. It's a message of good news and God helping us as we've thought about this. I hope that we will think, yeah, this really is good. This really is tremendous. Uh, so I'd like to look at it by asking five questions. So uh, question number one, what? What is the problem? Question number two, when? When was it solved? Question number three, how? How was it solved? Question number four, who? Who was it for? And question number five, why? Why was it done? So you've got all the interrogatives there. What, when, how, who, why? So let's first ask the question, what is the problem that we're talking about? And the answer comes in two stages. Uh, so part one, for human beings, the problem is the problem of God's future wrath. So you have the book of Romans open in front of you, and if you flip back, you'll see in chapter 1, verse 18, he says that the wrath of God is being revealed. So there's a current, present aspect of God's wrath. But in chapter 2, verse 16, he talks about the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. And in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So Paul, who's telling us this, has in his mind that there is a huge problem of God's future wrath. And of course, it is largely future. So it's something that is not yet fully evident. You may not be aware of this. You may not think that it's a problem because it isn't here yet. But there is a problem about what will happen on the future day of God's wrath. So I put a synonym for wrath, anger. Wrath, anger. One day, God will look at every human being and see how they have done, and that will be a day when his anger is revealed. How does that work? Well, for Paul, it works in two ways. Here is... Uh, the typical non-Jew, as Paul would have seen it in those days, 
So he's wearing a little uh, robe to show he's not a Jew. And there he is in God's world with the trees and the sunshine and everything, all of creation around him. And this person has worship and reverence, but it goes the wrong way. Instead of worshiping the creator, this person worships created things. And as Paul sees it, he looks out on the, the world of people full of idols, making up their own version of what God is like and worshiping and trusting that. And he says that uh, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So these are the people who, instead of worshiping the Creator, take something that he has made, something that they have thought of, and they worship that instead or trust that. And this, in fact, is a huge insult to God. This is a huge insult to God. And on the day of God's judgment, he will say how deeply offended he has been that people have made up who they want to worship instead of worshiping him. Now that's not the only sort of person that Paul is thinking of. He's thinking of his fellow Jew. Now his fellow Jew has the Bible. Well, in those days it wouldn't have been the New Testament, but he would have had the Old Testament part of the Bible and he would read that. And this person would be informed unlike the ignorant Gentile, but this person knows very well what is the right thing to do. This person, um, as Paul sees uh, him or her, this is uh, the one who hears the law, but it is not the ones who hear the law that count, it's the one who do the law. Uh, they know what's the right thing, but they don't actually do it. And this leads to some very uh, interesting pieces of psychology. Uh, you might imagine people who are very respectable, know the right thing to do. Perhaps they imagine that they do do all the right things, and they can end up being very proud and snooty and looking down on other people. Alternatively, knowing the law but not being able to do it can lead to despair. So Paul has got these two basic types of person, both of them lined up for future wrath. One because of the way they worship something they've made up, another because ethically they know what they're supposed to do but they don't do it. And as Paul has talked about this in quite a, uh, an involved way in the letter that we were reading from, uh, he summarizes it in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Both of these types of people are under sin. Both of them are headed for the day of judgment. Both alike are under sin. Or as he says in the bit that was read, chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
and I would like to ask you whether you think this is a problem not only for people in the day when this letter was written but a problem for people now um, I think perhaps nowadays people are a bit of a mixture of both of those things uh, there's loads of people who uh, worship all sorts of gods and goddesses in western culture it's not so obvious because we don't tend to make shrines like you do in perhaps in a Hindu culture but still people make things up in their mind and say I couldn't worship the sort of God in the Bible no I prefer to think of God as this this and this people make mental images rather than metal images and then there's people who know what they should do perhaps you know what you should do and perhaps if you look into your heart you say I know what I should have done and should have thought but I don't do it I'm very conscious that I don't do it and uh, so I'm asking you whether you would say this is your problem all have sinned and come short of the glory of God that would actually include you and me maybe I'm pointing out something that you didn't realize before maybe this is a need that you never realized you had my son in London had a, a, a shared a student house and uh, they found little well they heard little scurrying noises in the wall and they might have thought ah oh, how interesting little scurrying noises how quaint how sweet how lovely but then they found that uh, things went missing from the kitchen and they found rat droppings and then they begin to think actually those rather strange and unexplained noises are actually rats we've got rats running through our house running down the skirting board running through the walls running under the floor running through the kitchen that's what they had it was a problem that they didn't realize they had they just saw some little indications but they didn't really understand them now what the bible is doing here is saying maybe you can see the indications maybe you can say well you know sometimes i feel guilty when I look out in the world, I see bad people doing bad things. I see wars. What's all this about? Where does it come from? And the Bible says this is showing a problem that you might not have known you had. It's the problem of sin, the need for forgiveness. And one day, God will show his anger against not just the sin that you can see on the surface, but the sin that was lurking underneath and all round. That's the problem, part one. But there's actually another problem, and you might even say this is a bigger problem. Not a problem for us, but a problem for God. The problem for God is how to be righteous and make righteous. You see it in verse 26, uh, where it says, he says, oh, let's read a little bit of it. Now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God, it says. And it talks about Christ, and in verse 26 it says, he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of words there, so let's try and boil it down a little bit. In English, the word just and righteousness, justify, righteous, sound very different, but in the original, it's just one word translated slightly differently. So this is all to do with justice. And God is a just and righteous judge. So this is to do with God in his capacity as a judge. And what does a judge do? A judge looks at people and he can say to them in his judgment one of two things. He can say, I look at you and for various reasons, perhaps to do with the evidence I've heard or perhaps to do with something else, I say you are a guilty person and when the judge says you are guilty, it is called condemning. And the person now enters a state of condemnation. They have guilt and they will have to be punished in what, to whatever degree, in whatever way. But the judge can say, I've thought about it, heard about it, weighed it all up, and for various reasons I say, you're guilty, you're guilty, you've done that, you shouldn't have done that, you've done it, you're, you're guilty. Now the, that's one thing that the judge can do. The second thing that a judge can do is to justify. Uh, so if we were to use the word righteousness, you'd try and make it into a verb, as I'll so, show you in a moment. But what this, uh, what, what this would happen was that the judge would look at this person and say, you're accused of this and you're accused of that and you're accused of something else. I've come to my decision and I say, you're not guilty. You don't have to go to prison. You don't have to pay a penalty. You don't have to feel bad. I'm going to say you're not guilty and you leave this court without a stain on your character. You leave this court with your head held high you leave this court not worrying that the police are going to come and knock on your door and catch you for something because the police are there to protect you. If you ring them up, they'll help you. You are declared righteous and you're not headed for wrath, but in Paul's way, you say you're headed for glory. So let's just think about those words. In English, we have... Uh, now, uh, words like this, beauty, which is a noun. Beautiful, which is an adjective. And beautify, which is a verb. So, beautify. Um, by the look of you, you've all been to the beauty treatment this week. Um, a beautician uh, beautifies people. And the beautician will do something to you to make you beautiful. Honestly, it doesn't, 
You don't need much doing to you as I look out at you. But, um, so that's the verb, to make beautiful, to beautify. The righteousness set of words, righteous, that's being righteous. Uh, righteousness is the noun, righteous is the adjective, but there isn't a verb, so I'm just gonna make one up to righteousify. Now, when a judge righteousifies somebody, it's not like a beautician that changes somebody. What the judge does is to declare. The judge gives a verdict and says, I am going to count you as righteous. That's the label I'm gonna put on you, or if you like, that's the box I'm gonna put you in. Here's a box marked condemned, so some people get put into that box. Here's a box marked justified, some people get put into that box, and then they get treated according to which box they're in. The guilty, condemned, face wrath, and the, the ones counted righteous, well, they look forward to glory. You actually have that word in chapter three, verse four, where it says, let God be so that you may be proved right when you speak. And the word proved right is this same word to justify or righteousify. It doesn't do anything to God. It just says what we, says a verdict on him. You are right. You are good. You are not guilty. So this is the, uh, the situation about justifying. It's the action of a judge. Uh, it's the righteous action of a judge. And it was promised in the Bible, 321, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So as the law and the prophets in the Old Testament were saying, God will do this. He will righteously declare people righteous. And in fact, he's already been doing it. In verse three, chapter three, verse 25, it says, uh, in, his, in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He's already been treating people as just. But the question is, you see, this is the problem. How can God do this to sinners? This is the problem. How can God take sinful people who have done wrong and look at them and say, I've weighed everything up, I've looked carefully into the case, and I'm going to say to you, not guilty, go free without a stain on your character. Now you see, I could understand God doing that for people who are not guilty, but how can he do that for sinners? Do you see the big problem? How could God possibly say to sinners, not guilty, leave this court without a stain on your character? That seems to me so big a question, so big a problem as, as really to bring into, in, into question God's own integrity. How could he possibly be just and justify wicked people? How to justify sinners? How could God look at Gentiles who get things so wrong and ever 
justify one of them? How could God look at people who were, you know, pagan Celts who'd been running up and down painting themselves blue for centuries uh, and say, you're fine, not guilty. You know, they've been making Stonehenge and worshipping and sacrificing their children. And God says, no, that's fine, off you go. How could God take uh, people from uh, a Hindu background who've been worshipping idols and ever, ever say to them, that's fine, not guilty? How could God ever take somebody from a, a Western European background, somebody reads The Guardian who completely dismisses the idea of any God that you're supposed to worship and they trust in stocks and shares and they trust in, um, uh, I don't know, politicians as if they were worth trusting in. And how could God ever take somebody like that and say, that's fine, go free, uh, not guilty? Big problem for God. How can God the judge not be, not end up being corrupt? That's the word for it, isn't it? If you let off people that you know are guilty, you know, maybe they paid you something or maybe you know their uncle or you went to the same school as their grandfather or something like that, that's corruption, isn't it? Or being soft or being hypocritical. Here's the problem for God problem for us, we face future wrath. The problem for God, how on earth can he justify sinners? That was the question, what was the problem? Question two, when was the problem solved? Well, the, this bit that we're basing our thoughts on does have some time references, verse 21, but now a righteousness from God apart from law, has been made known. And he also says in verse 26, he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. Well, what's the, what, what, what's the time scale? But now. Well, he's saying now something's happened. Previously it hadn't happened, but now it has. And the... the, the the then in the past was Old Testament times, the law and the prophets, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The law and the prophets were telling us things for hundreds and hundreds of years, but now something's happened. And of course the now is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's what he's exactly talking about, isn't it? Now, Jesus has died on the cross, and now, everything's changed. Now, Jesus died on the cross, and it says of this, just look what it says, verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What he's saying is this is all finds its resolution and its revolution in Jesus dying on the cross. God presented him, it says, as a sacrifice 
of atonement. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement in his blood. And the contrast is with the Old Testament because it couldn't produce this verdict of not guilty. It couldn't produce this gift of righteousness. It couldn't do that. And it, it, Paul says, now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. So all the, the things that the Old Testament, all the, the law code, the ethics of the Old Testament could not produce the verdict not guilty. But this does, this cross, but now, he says, now it's been made known, he says. Now God has demonstrated his righteousness, verse 25, 26. Uh, the Old Testament testified that it was coming. A righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify, but now it's come. And you can see how revolutionary Paul thinks the cross is. How great a work is the cross of Christ. All those years we could not see why on earth God should forgive sins. He did it, but didn't see why. It seemed very unjust, very strange. But now, it's all in the open. But now we see the mighty thing that God has decided to do to make this possible. And there it is. There it is. There it is. There it is. Three crosses on a hill. Two of them are criminals. The one in the middle is the Son of God, dying as if he were a criminal. But now, the righteousness of God is made known. And Paul will tell us, this that looks so weak is the mightiest of power. This that looks so, uh, so unimpressive is the greatest wonder. This that looks so foolish is the wisest thing of God. And this that looks so disgraceful is actually the brightest expression of the glory of God. So that's when the problem was solved. But how can we say anything about the mechanics of it? What was happening when Jesus died on the cross? Well, there are two words I'd like to pick out from here, and one of them is in verse 24. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. They're declared not guilty freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So let's think of this word redemption. Redemption is the noun, redeem is the verb. It's an idea about, that is mostly to do with slaves. So there's a slave with a chain on his or her foot. This person is enslaved. And how can they be freed? Well, they could be freed by an act of great power or the payment of a great price. 
and of course in, in um, uh, literally in the slave market in those days you could redeem a slave you know, as a slave, a bit like eBay I suppose you go uh, through the, the city and the, the, the slave market and every one of these people has chains on them either metaphorically or literally and uh, you say I'd like to set this person free, well that will cost you how much will it cost you? It cost you this amount. Well, really? And what you're doing is redeeming. You're paying a cost to set somebody free. And when they're redeemed, they're set free. No longer a slave. No longer chained up. No longer constrained and limited. Set free. That's what happened to the people of God in the time of Exodus. God redeemed them by a mighty hand. They were, they were slaves in Egypt and God set his people free. And Paul says that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. A great powerful act was done. A great price was paid. And the result of it is redemption through Christ Jesus. Set free and you might say well what, what, what's the act of power what, what's the price that was paid and the answer is there on the cross the answer is there what Jesus did when he died on the cross we are told was an act of mighty power and huge expenditure if you like your, our debt was paid by Jesus Christ and we go free redemption and atonement you see the, the New International Version of the Bible which is perhaps the one you've got from the back of the church in verse 25 God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement and it refers to his blood Atonement is, the, is an English word made up, I think, by one of the early translators, and it, it means what it, what it looks as though it means, at-one-ment, two sides at each other's throats, offended, not talking to each other, whatever it is, brought one. Something to bring people together, to make an at-one-ment that's, a, that's the sort of English language aspect of it. But the, uh, the original language, it, it works much the same. It's to do with sacrifice. And if you had been brought up as a good Jew, if you'd read the Law and the Prophets, you would know how this all works. You would know that guilty sinners get involved with a sacrifice of atonement. And how do they get involved? Well, either themselves or somebody on their behalf will take an animal. This poor animal comes along and they put their hand on the animal. And uh, you know that if you've got a, a disease and you put your hand on somebody, you transfer the disease to them. Uh, you'd still have it, but they'd have it as well. Now, this seems to work slightly differently. You put your hand on the animal and the sin that you have gets transferred to the animal and leaves you. That's how it seems to work. Because the animal now gets treated as a, as a sinner and in a, 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 one of these blood sacrifices, the animal dies. 
the animal dies and you are in the clear you go free you don't die you live that's the way those the sacrifices of atonement worked there's lots more to it but that's the basic principle it's a, 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 a principle of transfer and this animal gets treated as you ought to have been treated and you go free instead. And what he is saying is, this is what happened on the cross. But instead of a snake being on the cross, like we were thinking at communion, or instead of a sheep being on the cross, or instead of a, a, um, a cow or some other domestic animal on the cross, you have a human being on the cross and this person gets treated the way we should have been treated and the wrath of God which says the wages of sin is death the wrath of God descends on him in all its awfulness in all its fullness and I don't think we're ever expected to calculate what that is. I think the hymn writer says, rightly, we may not know, we cannot tell what pain he had to bear. Our salvation doesn't depend on us having some sort of imagination to comprehend exactly what he went through. We just know that he did go through it, and that was enough. He had that on the cross so that we go free. And here are two words which very helpfully open to us what was happening. How does this problem get solved? Redemption, a mighty payment, a mighty act to set people free. And sacrifice of atonement, someone being treated as I deserved so that I should go free. And that, it says amazingly, is what happened to Jesus. It wasn't an animal's blood, but his blood. God, can you believe that these words are in the Bible? God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement in his blood. And on Facebook, you can like things, can't you? You can push the little button which says, I like that. And I wonder if you would press that button. Because that's quite a button to press. Do we like the idea that somebody innocent got killed? I don't think we'd like that. Do we like the idea that God's own son had to be in a position of disgrace like that? I don't think we would like that. But I think the he doesn't ask us to make a judgment on that what he says is don't worry about how disgraceful it was or how much it cost this is what I want you to know I did it for you and through his wounds we are healed the, um, the punishment that we should have borne was on him and he says do you like that is that something brilliant? Don't worry about the cost. Just accept the benefits. I did it for you. I did it for you. 
Will you have that? Will you, will you take that? Will you say, yes, Lord? You know, it brings tears to one's eyes to think that that's how much it cost. But that's what it did cost, but he did it. Will you press the like button and say, thank you, Lord? Thank you for what you did for me. How is the problem solved? And who benefits? Who benefits? Now, Paul has in mind as he uh, goes through this two completely different ways of understanding religion. Uh, Both of them with real-life examples. Who benefits? Well, here's the first answer. Is it those who work and do the ethics, do the ritual, keep and observe the law? So in verse 27, he says, uh, what, about, what principle does this work on? On that of observing the law. Do you see that in verse 27? Is it to do with observing the law? And in verse 28, he says, is it to do with observing the law? Of course, that would be only the, the Jews could do that because you had to be Jewish to really observe the law. And here's somebody observing the law, working really hard, building up an edifice, building up a building with building blocks and even being circumcised. So I forgot to put the blood there just to emphasize that. Uh, keeping the law. And he says, you know, this can produce, it can produce despair, but it can produce pride. Uh, so people can say, look, I'm going to be uh, voted righteous by God because of how hard I've tried because of how good I am. You know, look at me, I'm the chairman of the golf club, and uh, I've got a big car, got a very nice house, uh, been photographed in Hello magazine, uh, whatever it is, uh, look at me. Um, is it by doing the right thing, the good thing? Well, now to a lot of people, that's the way they think of themselves in life. I mean, you may be thinking the opposite. You may say, look at me. I'm not the chairman of the golf club. Look at me. I wouldn't dream of having a big house. Look at me. You might be doing it in all sorts of ways. But we, we feel that we, we've earned it by how well we've done. And, and we boast. And Paul says, is that the principle by which we benefit? And I have to say that for most people, they'd say, well, of course that'd be it. Of course, that's what religion is. Of course it is. You, uh, you do whatever your religion says. You go to church, you know, at least once a year. Uh, you might say a prayer. Uh, you might go to communion. Um, but you, you clock it up. You, you work, and that's, of course, how it works. But Paul says, no, that's not how it works. Who benefits? Paul is at pains to say, it is not answer one, so I've got my pen, I've put a little cross there, meaning not that answer. It works on a completely different principle. Verse 22, he says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who, what's the word? believe. And in verse 26, 
He says he did it in, to demonstrate his justice at the present time, to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And he says it in verse 30. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised, that's the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, the other lot, by faith. So this is totally opposite to what people think. But what he's saying is, for the vilest sinner, the worst sinner that you can think of, and that might actually be you, but it might be somebody else, there is justification leave the court without a stain on your character go free set free redeemed atoned for there is that not because of how well you've lived but because of what Jesus died or Jesus did in this mighty act of redemption Now, you might well find that very offensive. And if you don't find it offensive, I know there are a lot of people who do, because they would say, if you preach that in, in the church, you're going to ruin the church. If you tell people that, people will, you know, what will happen to the, the chairman of the golf club? He won't come along anymore. I'll tell you what will happen if you preach that people who are sinners will find their burdens are lifted people who are sinners will find that God says lift up your head you're forgiven that people who have the deepest darkest secrets can relate to other people as brothers and sisters because they all know they've all been forgiven so which of those answers are you going to live by is it the trying keeping observing which leads to, leads to all sorts of unhealthy things like boasting and pride and looking down on other people? Or are you going to live by the trusting route, which actually leads people to be absolutely amazed that God could do something like that for them? And instead of people being proud and looking down, they say, Lord, I am just amazed that you did that for me. How wonderful you are. And to look on other people in a completely different light. Not just to think I'm better than them, but to think how can I serve them? Which route are you going down? Which would you, which would you opt for? The trying route or the trusting route? Because Paul says he is the wonder of it. God justifies those who put faith, who trust him. And why was the last question. Why does he do it? So you'll tire of me putting it this way. Is it, does he do it this way because people deserve it? To which the answer is absolutely no. Absolutely no. How does he justify these people? Verse 24, it says... They are justified freely by his grace. Just take note of those words. Freely means without a cause. 
friend of my dad said he was walking down the beach and somebody just came and punched him in the mouth for no reason at all. He said, what did you do to him? I didn't do anything. He just came and punched me in the mouth. Broke my teeth. No reason. Why does God justify sinners? Why does he justify you? No reason. No reason in you. Glad he didn't come punch us in the mouth. He comes and blessed us with salvation. What have you done to deserve it? Nothing. By his grace. Grace means God being kind to people not only who don't deserve it, but who deserve the opposite. And God says, I'm going to find a way, I'm going to make a very deep plan, I'm going to do all that's necessary, and it really is a lot, so that I can take sinners and bless them just because I want to bless them. Why? Not because anybody deserves it, but really for God's glory. For people to say, now and certainly in the world to come, what an amazing God God is. How great. How just. Because he hasn't contravened his justice. All the debts have been paid, but it's just by, paid by somebody else. How just. How kind. How wise is God? For God's glory and for sinners. Because through this amazing work of Jesus Christ, who was long prophesied, but now at a certain point in time, came and died on the cross because he did that, God can look at you and me and say, go free justified, not guilty. And having said that, one day he will say, glorified. Come and be with me forever.